I wanted to talk about one thing though you mentioned. The main thing was I think about like uh, if we should be full speed ahead or put on the brakes or maybe um, uh, somewhere in the middle uh, mm-hmm. with regards to AI deployment. And you mentioned that there's some nervousness when we see things like how how good ChatGPT is at a range of tasks. Like this is this can be worrisome, and a lot of like high-ranking faculty are signing declarations saying that we need to break mm. on, on things. Um, I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, I, I, see, I see a lot of dangers in AI. I've been talking about the dangers of in AI for a while, but I think the dangers yeah. of AI aren't necessarily in the models, but in in like the in, in incorrect use of them. And most of that comes from um, you know uh, the power that organizations or individuals can get or governments from right. the use of these technologies. This isn't the technology itself; it's the use of them that's problematic. Welcome, everyone, to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Welcome to episode 24 of Reboot Health. Frank Rujic is an associate professor at Dalhousie University, co-founder of Winterlight Labs Incorporated, founding faculty member at the Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence, status professor at the University of Toronto, and CIFAR Chair in Artificial Intelligence. He works in the area of machine learning and healthcare, especially in natural language processing, speech recognition, and safe AI. His research has appeared in popular media such as Scientific American, Wired, CBC, and the New York Times, along with scientific press such as ACL, JAMA, and Nature. Frank, welcome to Reboot Health. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So this is gonna be, and we are just chatting before we started, um, AI and healthcare, a really juicy and meaty topic. We're probably not even going to scratch the surface here, but I'd just love to get your thoughts on a whole bunch of sort of different aspects and, and NLP will probably be the center of it uh, for obvious reasons. So, so maybe let's just get into it. You know, I had a brief bio at the, at, the, at the top there, but I find, you know, that doesn't do justice to a lot of our guests. They kind of come into this sort of cross section of what I call sort of innovation and healthcare through various different paths and intersections and journeys. So maybe you could unpack a little bit more for us sort of how you ended up sort of at this intersection, what I'm going to call sort of the, you know, you're still in academia, you're doing some yeah. really fascinating things in AI and you're pointing that all at healthcare. Kind of how did those three pieces come together for Frank? That's a great question. It came together like slowly in steps over a very long time. I like to say that I got into AI before it was cool. Uh, <laughs> And uh, when I got into it, it was it was very kind of the fringe, right? Like it was it was sort of a fringe area where there was lots of interesting topics, lots of interesting uh, theory and applications, but it was still kind of outside of the core of computer science, um, which is was focused on areas it's still focused on today, like interfaces, database security, and so mm-hmm. on. You know, at the time, um, I was just kind of fascinated by the mere possibility of trying to get machines to think like us, or at least to behave like us in in certain contexts. And I got into natural language like right away, like even when I was just like entering university as an undergrad. For me, language had everything that every other area of, of AI had. So you have, you know, you wanted to have models that you'd have to learn. So it incorporated machine learning. So you took data and you, you built these models automatically. 
Um, but to do it really effectively, you also needed really good models of the world. You know, if you're going to answer questions or, or communicate, you needed to understand how things work, right? And that was another area of AI at, at the time, which was very big on knowledge representation and reasoning, which is coming back now. Um, but uh, it was definitely there at the beginning. And then finally, you know, to me, it um, uh, you know, in comparison to the other areas of AI, language also involved interfacing, right? So uh, more than others, I thought, right? So like you wanted to engage with your machines, suddenly the whole science of human-computer interaction which is a whole huge area of science on its own, also came to bear. So it had everything for me. It was like a smorgasbord of topics, and it was great. Um, and like for most of my my my, my studies, uh, up until my PhD, was just like hammering away at this kind of like this you know core natural language processing science. But then when I came to the University of Toronto for my PhD, very quickly my advisor Graham Hurst sort of introduced me to a bunch of other people. Uh, and one of the advantages of U of T, among others, is like. It's huge, right? So, mm-hmm. like, there's just so many people, uh, faculty, uh, doing related work. And he introduced me to people in healthcare. So he said, "Well, we're doing a project with this hospital that's trying to use natural language processing to help people with with language delays or language differences." And then through that, um, I started working with the faculty of medicine. They had some really cool equipment where, like, you could outfit people's faces with sensors, so you could measure not only their speech acoustics, like the sound of their speech, but also how their tongue and the lips move to form those sounds. And, and we started recording um, people with um, a, a disorder called dysarthria, um, mm-hmm. which is basically just a neuromotor disorder. So people think very typically, but like the messages get corrupted when it goes to their lips and tongue. And then it sounds, it's harder to understand. So Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy are very common um, diseases that are involved dysarthric speech. And, you know, I was just kind of chugging away. I was recording data. My focus is still on the models, which I still care about. But then when I was interacting with the participants we brought in for my data collection, people with with, um, with with these speech disorders, they were like really adamant about like how the technology that existed at the time just wasn't able to understand them. Like they needed some help to communicate with people in the, in the, in the world. And there were some tools, some simple apps or some specialized keyboards that helped them construct messages, that, but they, the voices weren't theirs. They weren't emotional. It was really slow and laborious. And then suddenly the light went on in my head, like the machine learning at, at, at that point was suddenly like getting out of the basement, <laughs> out of the lab, and into and into an area where like you can actually see a real difference in the world. And um, I'm like, okay, this is it. You know, like I, I still cared a lot about like the more fundamental theory of, of natural language processing, machine learning. But like now more than ever, we're seeing like the real world benefits of this technology. And for me, it was from that point onward, it was always about like, well, how can we improve people's lives um, in terms of at, at the time mostly kind of clinical behavioral sort of applications. But then over time, we kind of like the more you get into this community, the more other uh, areas get exposed, um, including, you know, detecting Alzheimer's disease, uh, helping family doctors be more efficient, going into the operating room and making sure that surgeries are as uh, safe and efficient as possible. Awesome. Lots to unpack. The, the, the two questions I have, Frank, for you is one is maybe an obvious question and, and we'll kind of get into the details later. But at the time, did you think NLP would be as big or get to where it is now as quickly as it has, kind of when you started this thing, I guess is kind of the one obvious, you know, chat, GBT, Bard, Lamb, all these kind of things. But was that sort of something, was there a signal where you're like, wow, this is this is kind of the turning point and I'm kind of either just ahead of the curve or was this like, out like because again, AI has yeah. been, been there for a while. Like AI itself is not new. It's gone through some, you know, exciting times, some winters. But just as you got into sort of NLP, I'm just curious, were there any signals that you thought like, oh yeah, this is this is ready for prime time? Uh, I, was I definitely, yeah, so like I, I was an undergrad, like in the, in the mid 2000s, 
and uh, early to mid 2000s. And uh, at the time, there was a bunch of companies working on speech recognition, which is sort of my niche at the time. Uh, they were making a lot of like they're growing. There was a lot of um, there's appetite for it. So I kind of knew that I'd have a career. I, I, I get paid somehow, you know, uh, for doing what I love, you know, speech recognition. Um, but I didn't know what it was going to be like. At the time, it was mostly like you, basically what Siri is now. Like you, you, you speak into your phone and it turns the volume up or down or it gives you directions to, on, your, on your map or something. And then Google came around. Google, a lot of people don't think of it as a natural language processing company. And they do a ton of other stuff also. But, you know, the, the core business was really, you know, it's about ads and the mm-hmm. ads, like how do they figure out what ads to present to what people. A lot of that is based on, well, at the time, reading your emails, but also reading the text off of web pages and then having this task of information retrieval, connecting these two things. So all of those are, are very deep in NLP. And um, so whenever I use Google and, and whenever I see the effects of, of search engines in the real world, I'm like, that's NLP. Like NLP is kind of hit the big time, even if it's not like in flashing lights, like this is NLP. Oh, but yeah, like, like recently, I like guess taken on a whole new form. Like you know, uh, dialogue systems. Every time I give a presentation to like a technical audience on dialogue systems, up until like even like two years ago, it was sort of like, well, here's some really cool stuff you can do with it with very limited applications. Like we can we can have a chatbot that um, can figure out um, like what kind of health service you you need, um, or can analyze dialogue. But stuff that's on the order of of what GPT and other generative models are able to do now was was like even looking at the literature, the scientific literature at the time, still seemed like uh, far ways off. Um, but then uh, these, these models just kind of exploded, um, and uh, and yeah, now it's uh, it's it's uh, very it's not overwhelming. It's it's, it's just whelming, but it, it's very it's, it's satisfying. <laughs> All right, the overwhelming is still to come. The over part. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think you talked about speech recognition, which is kind of a good segue into I think you know your venture, Winterlight Labs, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But as I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of stuff and you you said whelming. I, I would probably say for most of it, it's overwhelming if we think about it because we're not embedded into that field. You know, as as it kind of gets out into, you know, the social culture, the zeitgeist, this whole thing over since, you know, since let's call it November 2022 with the release of ChatGPT, I find when I'm in conversations, I find it hard to track what people are sort of talking about. I think people tend to sort of conflate definitions. Maybe you can mm-hmm. just unpack that for us for the rest of the conversation. So like LLMs is like, you know, we're supposed to know what that that acronym is and it's large language models. But I don't know if people, including myself, really understand what that actually term represents. This whole idea of sort of generative AI has sort of just come out of kind of nowhere. Um, it's obviously big in VCs' minds and, and probably, you know, usually being funded right now. And then foundational models. And if we're just to focus on three, these three terms that I hear a lot of times, I don't know if people understand what they're specifically talking about when they throw those things or if they're conflating all those three. Maybe you can sort of unpack those three concepts for us so people have a better idea of what, you know, what they're talking about and what they should be talking about. So I guess it's large language models, generative models, and what was the third one? Foundational models. Foundation, sorry. I start with large language models. Like a language model really is just a model that represents some aspect of language. And they can be incredibly simple, like the kind of language model you have on your phone that just predicts the next word. Those tend to use basic statistics on like pairs of words next to each other. Yep. And they're very small. You can you can have um, those models take up on the order of a few kilobytes to maybe a few dozen megabytes. And then up until very recently, we still had, we're talking about large like language models. Um, there was a very popular language model called Word2Vec. Um, which was um, like a neural network-based language model. And, and suddenly uh, we started talking about embeddings, like a representation of a word as like a vector of numbers. But then you could do cool new stuff with it. Like you could see how closely words were related. You can measure that and you can look for clusters and relationships. 
Um, but even then, like word to vec uses just like a single hidden layer in the neural network. So like one layer represents the input word, uh, the output, like the third layer represents the, the next word in a sequence, but then the middle layer is where all the fun stuff happens, those embeddings, um, but it's just one layer. But then with, um, with uh, like every year there's a new model. So it's Elmo, um, various BERTs, and then now with um, the GPTs, like you're getting those, those middle layers, um, those are getting more and more numerous. Okay. Um, so you know, BERT's on the order of, of about 12 uh, hidden layers. Um, and you know, modern models you have on the order of 100 or so. Um, but uh, I mean, it's, it's simplifying things a lot. Um, like WordEvec used, used basic neurons as the hidden layer, whereas these new models use things called transformers, which I think your audience has heard about, which are a lot more complex and have different functions. But um, at a high level, you can think of them. It's more or less the same thing. Um, so somewhere between 12 and, and 96, that's when models became large. I've never really understood what the threshold is. And I think probably in five years, uh, people will look back at GPT-4 as just like a tiny or moderate sized model, potentially. Yeah, so like large language model really represents like these very, very, very deep uh, neural network based language models. And like the, the deeper it is, the more interesting stuff that can be, can be um, learned. So very, very quickly, like with, with BERT, for example, with these 12 hidden layers, the layers that are closer to the words encode information about language that's more closely related to words, maybe grammar, um, uh, like how, what, what two words can go together and conjugation, that kind of stuff. And then the neurons are closer to the output and the task encode information about your task, like whatever you're trying to predict. So the hidden layers are really um, important for, for understanding. So, so, um, for, so Frank, is large the sort of a proxy for the number of parameters in a model? Is that is that kind of the way to look at it or is that incorrect? Just exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the number of parameters basically scales with the, with the number of layers you have. Um, Got it. Usually, like a, a like a like a neuron or a transformer in a particular layer is completely connected to every element in the row above and, and below it, and so those are the parameters. So it, it scales up with the number of layers. Um, you know, and there are, there are some caveats to that, but that's that's basically it. So I think like BERT is sometimes a large language model and sometimes it isn't, but it's often thought of as the first foundation language model. Um, because with, with 12 hidden layers, um, suddenly it becomes computationally very expensive to learn something meaningful. You need a ton of data and you need right. like you know, a, a relatively good amount of GPUs to train it on. And so, you know, it's hard to really train from scratch like we could with WordTivec and, and previous models. So what's happening now is, you know, you have a, a big organization like a university, maybe the Vector Institute, or in, in this case, companies like Google or, or Meta. Um, they will take a ton of data um, and train the base. Um, of these models. Usually they train it in a, like an unsupervised fashion. So there's no mm -hmm. task involved. You're just learning how language works. Sometimes they train it with a super simple task, like just predict the next word. It always comes down to predicting the next word. Um, uh, and, uh, but it's basically, it, it's kind of agnostic to the task, right? It's a good general representation of okay. language, the foundation. Um, but then, you know, you, you want to use that model. You want to use it to uh, detect um, uh, stress in, in tweets or political persuasion in, in the news. You, you can get a small amount of data, usually very small, and you can just um, you know spend a little bit of time adjusting those parameters to the small amount of data you've collected. Um, but because the foundation model has encoded so much about language generally, you don't need very much data. It already knows what political bias is because it's seen that already. All you do is kind of focus in on on the task. So foundation models have been really important. So like you know you you, you download them from places like Hugging Face or other websites and. Um, a little bit of training that can show you a little bit of fine tuning that can last a few minutes um, can get you a really powerful um, model. And and so uh, the the when you say fine tuning, Frank, are you talking about sort of supplying with context specific data, or simply changing the parameters of the model, or both potentially? 
It's a bit of both, and normally okay. it comes with um, with a label. So at this point, you know, I mentioned before, these foundation models are often initially uh, trained in an unsupervised fashion. Mm -hmm. But now, if you want to say, I'm looking, I'm looking at tweets, and I want to see how people feel about a certain topic, um, you're going to have tweet data specifically, so very kind of um, more specific niche type of data, yeah. and you're also going to have labels. So you're going to have say like, here's examples of the person being, you know, for this outcome, and these are people against it. You have these labels, and then the parameters are are adjusted to, to dis differentiate between those two things. And um, so it's, that process is very, it's basically this training, but it's, it's right. you start with a very good set of weights, Plus. basically, to get from the foundation model. Got it. Uh, and lastly, uh, um, kind of generative AI. That's a bit of a strange term I find because, you know, literally we've had general, generative models since the 1940s. Wow. Um, the, the very simple language model I mentioned before that just predicts the next word, um, that was proposed by uh, one of my favorite scientists, Claude Shannon, back in, I think, 1948. And um, it's basically the statistics, like how often does this word follow that word? Um, but you can use that model to just generate text, you know? So if, if you train those statistics from any any data you have, you can sample from that model. And it, it, what you get is, is text that comes out. And um, the more complicated the models are, the more that tends to approach English. Um, but up until recently, that was kind of a party trick, you know? So you, you end up generating things that, oh, it's kind of, it sounds like English or, you know, um, machine translation like Google Translate is also a form of generative model, okay. broadly yep. construed, because um, you're you're generating the text in whatever language you're you're translating to. Um, but um, I mean, it's kind of caught it caught on now, especially because uh, most I think mostly because of the capacities of of models like GPT on the language side and and Dolly um, and others on mm -hmm. the um, uh, image side. So you, you can you can produce you know um, like the, the things you're generating are so much more lifelike. Right. Um, so as opposed to just classifying, and I guess it's a way of, of differentiating kind of models. Like these are models meant to look at the data and analyze them. These are models meant to to respond to you or to produce new new artifacts in the world. Got it. Wow, that, that's a, that's great. So thank you for that. So so let's actually kind of get into to you know the healthcare part, and and I'm gonna kind of, you know we've chatted about it, we've had a little bit of background, but with you know your venture, Winterlight Labs. That, that you started, I think, in 2015, correct me if I'm wrong, and it was uh, recently acquired by Cambridge Cognition, so mm -hmm. congratulations on that. Um, but maybe just for the audience and for myself, like, what was the what was the whole sort of plan or the ethos for Winterlight Labs? What were you hoping to achieve with that venture? And I, I believe it was in speech recognition, but let's I'd love to hear you sort of maybe unpack that for us. Yeah, so I think um, this... Uh... Uh, came about basically. I, I was I mentioned before how I was inspired by kind of taking like things that were mostly the work of computer scientists um, in the lab and then trying to translate it out into the world. You know, I, I saw some. I saw there's lots of room for for real world benefit. Um, and a lot of the students in my lab, the graduate students I was working with, had a very similar ethos. Um, you know, they they realized that NLP was was at the time getting a, as as early as 2015 was getting to the point where you can um, uh, do something with it. Um, we looked around, uh, the, basically, um, uh, what were the most pressing issues that we thought we could use natural language processing to help solve. And yeah, dementia and aging were, were like top of the list. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like a lot of countries, Canada included, have this um, aging population. And then with aging populations, you have um, increased prevalence of things like stroke, but it also Alzheimer's disease. We had found a little bit of um, uh, success in identifying like just basic language disorders from the text. Um, like the transcripts of, of how, what people with these disorders were saying um, by just pulling out statistics of language that we could get from 
classical natural language processing. So things like um, you know compute the grammatical complexity of the sentence, or compute the distribution of topics that the person's touching on, or compute something about their sentiment or their feelings. We had something initially something about like a hundred or so features, and over time we ended up developing a thousand features of this type. Um, especially when you get into speech. So with Alzheimer's disease, um, we found some data sets and we started collecting them where we also had access to audio. And that opens up a whole other set of, of uh, analysis, um, you know, how often people are pausing and even things that you wouldn't expect, like like how flat is their their pitch, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the models uh, would combine all these things. So it isn't just the flatness of your pitch alone, or it isn't just that you're using more pronouns instead of nouns. It's a combination of a lot of these very simple features that could go together. Um, machine learning figures out which ones are the most important, which ones are correlated more or less with the outcomes you, you're looking for, Alzheimer's disease. And yeah, we were very quickly able to get very high accuracies um, in terms of like predicting or identifying Alzheimer's from people who already had it. Um, but at that point, we decided to start the company. Um, we, we didn't like we didn't know exactly what we were getting into. Like that was the first main. I think some of us like are the, C, the person we brought in as a CEO had success previously. In the startup space, um, but with this company, it was, it was still new. Like healthcare AI was completely new. Like there was very little of it, and how we were going to kind of adapt to it, and what we'd have to like, how we change our approach was really unknown to us. But what was important is, you know, um, it was still always about trying to make a difference. You know, like we realized that the way that people were assessed for dementia and and other other disorders um, like these days, like uh, anxiety, depression. They're based on these, these pen and paper based tests, which you can't really do more than once. Um, it, it's, it's stressful to do them in the first place. The, the, the people who have to administer them, like the nurses, healthcare workers, they're already overloaded. They don't have time to do more of this. Um, and we wanted to help kind of relieve some of that burden. So that was always really our, our main goal. Um, things changed over time, but um, that was always, you know, uh, trying to, to help um, make, make, you know, move the needle a little bit in terms of how well healthcare is uh, administered was always the, the key goal. Got it. I want, I want to, so we're going to talk a little bit more about some of your challenges of winter likes. I'd like to sort of understand that for, for, for future founders coming up the pathway, but the, you mentioned sort of, you know, looking at speech with pauses, intonation, grammar, was there, was that stuff already published? Like, was there biological plausibility, even on an individual basis, that pause is related to sort of the severity of dementia or intonation? Or was this sort of an exploratory sort of academic exercise that sort of just uncovered some? I'm sort of curious, like, which, you know, who's leading who? Is it sort of the exploration? Hey, this, because you mentioned it's also unsupervised, right? So is it just, let's take a bunch of audio data, put it in there. We kind of know what we go on as an outcome and something magical just happens to come out. Or was it like, no, there's a bunch of papers. We just don't have a good way of categorizing or capturing that data. And so let's use AI for that. Yeah. Our approach was really kind of a mix of both. I think it was always important to have balance. So, you know, initially we started going more into the clinical and medical literature, like outside of computer science, mm-hmm. but into mm-hmm. clinical. And, um, you know, they, we you know, in those kinds of papers or that kind of research, they didn't describe linguistic effects using the same words that we use or the same like approach that we would. But it was kind of clear that they were describing uh, symptoms of dementia that kind of reminded us of features we could easily extract using our tools. And these were things like like how often they were pausing, uh, how complicated the sentences were, okay. um, and um, uh, you know, like higher level things like pragmatics, like how often they'd have to ask for help. Um, and then, but also some low-level things, basically like the length of sentences, um, like how many words are in a sentence, and um, and also things like nouns and verbs, 
how they were used. Um, those are all things that were there, but they were used. They were just described in a different way. Um, so a lot of it was was clinical knowledge leading us. You know, like we, we wanted to to know what was out there, and, and a lot of the features that turned out to be most important were the ones that were previously identified by the clinical community generally. But once you get up to a thousand features, like I mentioned, like they're not all going to be um, deeply inspired or, or, or uh, anything like that. So I, I, we use what I call the kitchen sink approach sometimes, which is, yeah, like get the data and uh, throw as much as you can at it and um, mm-hmm. let the data tell you what's important and what isn't. Got it. You still have to be very careful with that approach because there's a lot of like, sometimes you can end up like the model, you, your audience has heard of this also, can we overfit to yep. spurious correlations um, and and indeed, sometimes some of the acoustic parameters were very inscrutable. Like the second differential of the 13th kepstrel coefficient doesn't mean anything to me, even after all these years. Um, uh, but sometimes that kind of thing was, was was highly correlated or was useful in making predictions. So you have to be really careful. Um, so it was really a mixed approach. Uh, one thing I wanted to add to that, though, is like once you've, you've trained a model and the model tells you these are the important features, again, you have to go back to the drawing board and you, you're working with experts. And, you, you know, the experts were never satisfied, even if we said we have 91, 95% accuracy. That got us in the door, but it never, it never really, um, I think, completely sold the technology to the experts. They wanted to know what is the model actually learned. Like, does it correlate with my experience, and can I make use of it in my practice? Um, so, like a big red light flashing doesn't mean anything, but if they can say, okay, this person seems to be struggling with, um, you know, grammatical function, I, I, I have, I have an intervention for that. Or the the language features tend to seem to imply that they're having difficulty with executive function. I know what to do in that case. So we really needed the model to be explainable, and we could explain it by using these specific features and, and reporting it back to them. That was that was important. Got it. So so I'm gonna that, that sort of where it leads us, I mean, fantastically into our next question, which is sort of as you started to build Winterlight Labs, obviously you know it's AI meets healthcare. Healthcare is sort of a big behemoth. It's complicated, complex. It's got a lot of regulatory issues. There's clinicians in it. Um, which in itself is its own challenge. But as you kind of built this venture, like what, what, it, maybe on the initial days, so, you know, you started early 2015, so you're into this, like, you know, 2016, 2017. What are you finding as sort of some of your biggest challenges? Maybe not so much on the technical side per se, although if there were some major technical challenges, it'd be great to understand that as well. But what were some of your challenges as you started to sort of integrate with the healthcare system? Um, you know, what, what are maybe sort of some, some you know, maybe, I don't want to call it foundational to confuse it with what we talked about before, but what were some sort of key pieces of advice you'd give to sort of, you know, post-grad student now kind of in the computer science lab doing AI and saying like, wow, this is, this is, I'm going to change the world of healthcare. What are some maybe some learnings that you kind of figured about, figured about Winterlight Labs? So I think one, one, one thing, one technical challenge I want to mention quickly, um, which becomes a business challenge uh, later is generalizability of the models. Like it's very common for um, uh, like labs and universities say, but even even small companies that have relationships with hospitals or clinics to get a certain amount of data recorded in one certain um, uh, situation or from one group, uh, learn a model, get impressive results, report it back. But then when you try to deploy it at a hospital just down the street, um, you know, the results kind of crater. Um, and then we all, we all know like how like to basically adapt models to um, to uh, generalize. But once you're dealing with more and more complicated models uh, and uh, the model becomes more integrated with like whatever the framework or interface you're using, like if you're, if you're presenting results through this portal or something, um, but the portal expects certain you know, features to be important mm-hmm. or certain feedback to be obtained, like generalization is, is, is still, like even today, like a lot of the healthcare companies that I see that are like more established and the field is more established now also, like it's, um, 
making sure that your, your, your work generalizes. This is one of the key things. So it's a technical challenge, but it, um, okay. it's something that can, can be limiting when you're trying to, to grow um, as, a, as a company. Um, but yeah, like the other side of it is like the, the field you're trying to grow into. Um, and again, at the time when we were starting, Health AI was just a new idea, which was getting some interest. And so it wasn't as established as it is today, but some of the, the core problems still persist. Um, for us, I mean, we're all computer scientists, basically, and we had to take a lot of time understanding the, 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 uh, the uh, kind of the value proposition and mm-hmm. how, how we're actually going to make money. So I think naively at the beginning, you know, we were looking in, in both Canadian and American healthcare contexts, doctors need to be able to bill for something. And that's where a lot of the, the, the yep. flow of money happens. And, um, you know, it seemed like that was an area that we wanted to try to target initially. Um, but very quickly, we're like, well, look, if, if you're going to have a billing code, like you're going to need a new billing code for this and have a billing code. There's all these steps you have to go through, um, which that by itself is difficult, but something you yep. need a clinical trial, you need, et cetera, et cetera. And it's going to take years. And when you're a small company and um, you're trying to build some runway, usually you don't, you're not getting, sometimes you do, but sometimes you're not usually getting hundreds of millions of dollars right off the bat. That can, that can last you for five, six, seven years, whatever it's going to be. So I mean, we needed to be flexible and pivot. And um, we and sometimes, you know, the pivoting process was very stressful. And, you know, like you're, you're thinking to yourself, am I going to have to pivot away from from whatever my my initial goals or dreams mm-hmm. were for this company? Um, and maybe work in a slightly different space or something like that. And, um, you know, like it's important to be flexible and to consider all options. We were lucky in the, that, you know, there were large organizations, in our case, pharmaceutical companies, that were heavily engaged and had lots of uh, deep pockets to do clinical trials, multi-year studies, and the company kind of found its footing and found runway on interacting with those organizations and basically doing research um, with with them uh, using these these contracts which lasted a few years at a time. So the goal was always still to, to do something that could sell directly to clinicians, um, but um, working with organizations like that was was important. And generally, hospitals like if you're a small company, you got to find a way to work with the hospitals in your region uh, before you grow uh, to uh, across the continent so um, but yeah like the, the main challenge also is, is, is regulation like I kind of mentioned um, billing codes but yeah. uh, if you have a billing code for like a diagnostic device you're also going to have to have approval from Health Canada or from the FDA um, and when we started in 2015 there were zero devices that used AI that were classified as medical devices um, since then there's been like dozens now um, really I think the first one really hit the market the first uh, uh, AI powered medical device hit the market around 2018. That was classified as a class one or class two yeah. medical device. It was 2018. Um, and now it's much more common, but you still have to kind of go through that process. Um, so it, it's, it's more it's more regulatory. There is, a, you know, the gears turn slowly. And the last point I'll make on this is that you'll end, you'll end up talking to really excited champions. If you go to a big hospital, there's gonna be plenty of people who see the, the long-term and even the short-term value of AI and machine learning to their practice and healthcare generally. Um, and they'll bring you on and they'll, um, they'll be very excited, but to get the entire organization involved um, is still something that takes that takes a long time, um, especially if there's other priorities and other fires to put out. Got it. You, you mentioned, you know, in the previous in the previous discussion, you mentioned something about explainability and just uh, maybe we, how important is that, you know, in your experience you know, with Winterlight Labs, if you're sitting in front of a clinician to actually, you know, and I guess, I guess. You know, I'm going to maybe make a subtle nuanced difference between explainability and plausibility, right? So is it important really for them to really understand how the model got to where it is or just the fact that you can justify there's some, you know, bio, let's call it biological evidence 
that this makes sense as opposed to getting sort of some spurious result. Like when you're yeah. sort of sitting across the clinician, they, do they push back on it? Like, like I don't listen, I don't know how my car works. I know I press the accelerator and the thing goes, but if you ask me to fix it, I have no idea, but I still hop in the car and I drive it. Right. Cause it gets yeah. me to where it's going and I kind of some sense of what it's supposed to do, how I'm supposed to use it and, and where it's going to get. I'm just sort of, you know, when AI and healthcare, I, I'd sort of hear both sides of the coin that, you know, mm. as a clinician, I, yeah, I'd like to know how things work, but we use a lot of drugs where we don't use, know exactly the mechanism of action, but we tend to prescribe it anyway. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the car metaphor is good. I mean, because like it's, it kind of, well, I think when, when cars first kind of hit the road, there was a ton of skepticism about yeah. them. You know, like a lot of people thought this Fair is, enough. Is, you're going to need it. But it was perfect. That's it's the same as now, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, there's still some skepticism. People see the value, but like they're not totally convinced. And back then you really needed to understand how everything worked, right? Because the entire motor, you have to line this and push that and, and you know. Um, so, uh, it's, it's very similar. Like I, people needed to explain this, but over time, gradually when models become better understood by the general public and what their limitations are, what they can actually do and not do. Uh, and then also once as a whole, like wide mechanism, once the FDA or health Canada can really, um, use their expertise to, to ensure that this new model is safe in the same way that a drug is safe, like the other metaphor you mentioned, right. then I think people will, will just use it without really worrying about it too much. I mean, people already use AI on when they go on social media or Google without yep. really even thinking about it, but it's not, those applications aren't as critical as, as uh, healthcare to people. So it's going to still take some time. Um, but to, specifically to the question, there's sort of this difference between explainability and interpretability. Those are two terms that there's no real consensus on in the community, but for, to my mind, explainability really says, well, here's a model and we want to understand um, how it works internally, like right. by itself without the presence of, of predictions. And that's kind of what I was talking about before when we said things like, because this model is encoding the fact that people with dementia use pronouns more than nouns. Um, that resonates with the theory of the clinicians because they know that, okay, they can't remember the name for something, so they have to resort to the pronoun. Um, so that kind of gives a bit of the plausibility, like this model is, is learned, okay, it learned things that I know are, are correct. Um, uh, interpretability is a bit different. That's more like, well, we have a certain input, it goes through the model and it comes out with a decision on it. And uh, I want to know why that decision was made for this specific instance. Okay. Um, with uh, with models like BERT and, and, and GPT, a, a common form of what's often called explainability, I'd call it interpretability, is like uh, highlighting the words. Like, well, I think this person has dementia because these, these are the words they use. Um, that's limited. You can't um, use that kind of attention-based focus to say, like, well, the sentence is too short or, or it's, it's grammatically um, uh, too simple or something. Um, and it also results in problems. I think in the first case, like, like a plausible model that you can explain that's in the workings at a high level to people will like your foot's already in the door. That'll get you, get, get you into the room with people. Right. Like people have more confidence in the model. Um, but, um, when it comes to actually deploying it, like going from like a research study or a quality improvement study at a hospital to really being used uh, on day to day in clinical care, um, they're going to want to see a bunch of examples of like individual data points being interpreted, um, okay very accurately and that, that's where also some things can um, can you can run into problems that way because like occasionally first of all these models like i mentioned before the way that they interpret the decisions aren't always scrutable to us it might say that this word was important in my decision but it won't say if it's correlated with the class or not it says it's important to me Got so it. sometimes in i you know i worked in other settings where we use video um in an operating room it would like the model would focus on on like the tooltip, and it would say this is important to me, but it wouldn't say much about why it's important. Got it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think um, you know, there's always going to be like a human in the loop. I think 
kind of completing the circuit, like a, a human who yep. understands how a model explains itself will look at these outputs one by one and then interpret it in, for a human. Uh, right. It's, it's a key part of the process. It's not something that you can just take any any uh, clinician and ask them to understand what this model is, is throwing at them. You're going to need people to interpret. Gotcha. Perfect. So I want to I want to sort of pull back a little bit and and maybe sort of talk about sort of some higher level things in the ecosystem in Canada, um, and, you know, and the, and the first one is you know I think I think most people would would agree that sort of Canada has a role in AI. Obviously, we'll point to sort of Jeffrey Hinton, University of Toronto, Vectors here, Mila's here, or Amy's here in in, in the West. Um, I, I'm just wondering that I think and please correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of these are sort of at least they started out as sort of you know academic slash research institutions, and now I think mm -hmm. the pushback is, are we doing enough to sort of get some of the stuff like obviously you know stuff that you did with Winterlight Labs, but are we doing enough to get AI out of our academic ecosystems and into commercialization, just mm -hmm. in, particularly in health, which is the focus of you know this podcast. So just mm -hmm. are, you know from your perspective, you know you I think you've got an inter interesting vantage point. Frank, are, are we doing enough to to sort of move that? Maybe maybe we're doing too much. And I know there's obviously a huge debate now with Jeffrey Hinton sort of saying you know we need to press the pause button and a bunch of other people. So maybe now it's not the opportune yeah. time to ask you that question. But mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on sort of that process. And, and, you know, what needs to change either way, if we're going too fast, what, what do we need to slow down? And if we're not going fast enough, what needs to speed yeah. up in Canada? Yeah, that's an amazing question with, with lots of different dimensions to it, right? Yeah. So one dimension is like Canada versus the world. One yeah. of them is academia versus industry and deployment. And one of them has all the intricacies of healthcare. Um, on one hand, you know, I, I, I'm Canadian and uh, I, I think I'm just biased to want to see Canada succeed. And, um, you know, I think one of the reasons why Canada has been so successful in the AI space is that you know when other countries were focused like more on the applications, and this is including mm -hmm. the states. A lot of the the funding for for um, AI research in the states was always sort of towards some end. Whereas in Canada, and Jeff Jeff Hinton also has been on record mentioning this. You know, things were funded by the federal government through programs like CIFAR and NSERC mm -hmm. to just fund uh, fund you know fundamental research. Like computer science is not just a means to an end; it's a valid form of science okay. in its own. And, and that's that's what people like like. Kept Jeff Hinton in, in Canada and people like Rich Sutton in Alberta, yep. um, Yoshua Bengio in Montreal. Like they were doing fundamental science. They were they were working on machine learning because they loved it. I, I, I can't get it in their minds, but they seem to have loved it. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, a, and a lot of people like like myself were doing it because they cared about it. A priori, you know, um, and uh, and that's what that's what made Canada such a powerhouse in terms of AI research, right? Um, but um, that doesn't always translate to to application. Right. And this is where it gets tricky, right? Because like if you're a company trying to do health AI in Canada, you can do a ton, right? There's a, there's a ton of, of stuff you can do, even in just single cities like Toronto or Montreal. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to form a long-term business, you're going to have to look outside Canada. It's just the nature of the thing. Yeah. And I really want com companies to stay in, in Canada. Like I've seen a, a few companies start here, even in like, you know, wealthy cities like Toronto, big cities like Toronto. They'll go to uh, other you know American cities yeah. to set up shop, and that's always always seems like like we, we've we've lost something, like we missed an opportunity. Like we should be able to keep headquarters in Toronto and still sell to sell mm -hmm. to Americans and Europeans and so on. Um, and so I, I'm not sure what the solution is there, but um, you know, we, with more funding, as always comes up. Like we we kind of Canadian investors have had the reputation of being a bit more skittish or or uh, nervous with regards to large uh, large investments or investing in things that are seen as risky. Whereas what made I think California successful is they they weren't as as uh, as risk averse um, as we 
kind of has been, and their deeper pockets also. So I think, uh, you know, opening up the purse strings a bit, it's easier said than done. I don't have to open up mine necessarily, but like, <laughs> having more of like funds in the ecosystem is important. Um, and I think Toronto, Montreal and, and, um, uh, and Edmonton and, and Vancouver also uh, have, have already done a, a great amount of work in setting up the ecosystem. One of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm moving to Halifax is I see the beginnings of a growing ecosystem in Halifax, connecting yeah. the university, government, industry and healthcare there. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about what's happening in, in Halifax and Nova Scotia generally. Um, but yeah, having an ecosystem where everyone's working together, you have young, excited people coming out of grad school who are sometimes starting companies, sometimes doing research, going and, and having a nice deep in, uh, intersection of these things. It's something we didn't traditionally have in Canada. Um, they had it in the States and we need to grow it out a bit more. Um, I, I mean, the, the question was so, so wide, 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 widespread. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about one thing though you mentioned. The main thing was, I think about like uh, if we should be full speed ahead or put on the brakes or maybe um, uh, somewhere in the middle uh, mm-hmm. with regards to AI deployment. And you mentioned that there's some nervousness when we see things like how, how good ChatGPT is at a range of tasks. Like this is going to be worrisome. And a lot of like high ranking faculty are signing declarations saying that we need to put a mm-hmm. break on, on things. Um, I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, I, I, see, I see a lot of dangers in AI. And I've been talking about the dangers of in AI for a while, but I think the dangers yeah. of AI aren't necessarily in the models, but in, in, like the, in, in incorrect use of them. And most of that comes from um, you know, uh, the, the power that organizations or individuals can get or governments from right. the use of these technologies. This isn't the technology itself, it's the use of them that's problematic. So if um, you know, a country wants to spread disinformation in another country, like they're going to have an easy time of it now with, with GPT as compared to several years ago. And uh, that's a problem, right? Um, or a single company um, being like the sole source of right. like what we're, we're trying to deploy is also going to be a problem for, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to have a, a, the power of AI needs to be spread as widely as possible. Um, so I, I, I see there's a lot of problems with it, but, you know, at the same time, there's like the worrisome massive models like GPT. Mm-hmm. And then there's the smaller models that can be used uh, in deployment now. And I think, Maybe we should put the brakes on. We should we should we need to regulate and be very careful with models like GPT. Like there's questions about you know uh, what what data is used to train them, how open mm-hmm. and transparent these models are to understand how they actually work, what biases exist in them. So we, we need we need to you know, put to safeguards around um, those kinds of models if we're going to be getting our news from them, for example, right. or information from them. But um, you know that doesn't mean we have to cool or put the brakes on. You know all of the benefits we can get uh, of AI in healthcare now, um, in in more specific contexts. So in in Chrono, uh, there's a a group led by Mohammed Mamdani, and he since has started another company called Signal One, and and they're they're kind of very focused um, use of AI and data science generally to make improvements that you can see like literally right away. You know, and it's not like wide ranging models like ChatGPT. It's really just like like how how do we how do we schedule nurses more effectively so that, right. you know, they're not burning out the patients still get the care they deserve, but, um, you know, organizations like hospitals don't spend as much as they, they once did. If you can hit all those things and you can with, with these, these very specific models, right. you're going to see a ton of benefit. And I don't, I don't want them any fear or uncertainty people have because of ChatGPT to, to reflect, you know, on these more precise models that we can, use right away to get a tremendous amount of benefit. So we have to take a balanced approach, I think, between the wide spectrum of models that we, we right. see out there. 
when, when, when we think about sort of the wide models that are out there, like the chat GPTs, um, you know, and the Google's Bard and all these kind of things, and, and as you sort of apply it to healthcare specifically, and I know you're not sort of a regulatory expert, but what do you, you know, if you look at regulation around sort of the use of these models within healthcare, and obviously, you know, they may be tweaked, you'll sort of you know, make them context specific, you'll, you'll, you know, you won't just apply chat GPT and give it to a physician mm-hmm. and let them run wild, but, but you'll mm-hmm. fix it. But are there any sort of, you know, are there some obvious concerns that you would have given what you just said sort of around safety, privacy, ethics? I mean, one of the interesting things, and and, and I think this is interesting from two twofolds. When I was using ChatGPT, I, I used it for sort of just, you know, looking up some some new molecules on on epilepsy. ChatGPT identified two beautiful references, which I would give like perfect marks to back in university. And when I went there, they didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, in, in, in this instance, it's probably not a big deal, but if it's a healthcare in, in, instance, you can imagine where this could be a huge problem, right. With significant yeah, exactly. um, impact. So just as we look at this, I mean, are there any sort of, you know, you look at regulation, you look at where we are now with NLP, any sort of major kind of concerns um, kind of come to mind around sort of regulation things that we really need to just be vigilant of. And again, I know you're not a regulatory experts so and not asking for detailed advice, but just as you, as you see it from your perch. No, that's a great question. Also, I um, I let's see. Um, uh, I I think the one thing we need to be wary of is just how we adapt to these new technologies. There's a quote I often use. It's Marshall McLuhan's quote, which is, um, you know, first we shape our tools, but then thereafter our tools shape us. You know. Yes. Yes. And I think that fits AI perfectly. Um, uh, so we, we developed these, like ChatGPT is a, a phenomenal tool, um, but then when we start using it, then how we approach problems uh, will also change. And I, I've already kind of seen sometimes people get kind of satisfied with whatever ChatGPT throws at them. Like it looks reasonable right. yeah. and um, sometimes it works. I, I used it myself last night. Uh, I had to make a complicated graph in, in Python and I didn't want to wait. I was tired, so I asked ChatGPT to do it for me. It, it gave me something really messy and and, and it I, I kept on encountering errors, right? So I spent most of my time debugging ChatGPT's output until it finally worked. In in total, it still saved me time, but I had to do this like intervention of, of bug fixing. Right. Um, and I think that that generalizes like to your question, um, which is how it's going to be used um, by the public. And you mentioned this instance where like these citations were used, and like oh, I also saw the same thing. Like it's really long URLs. It looked perfectly yep. like the URLs you see in the real world, but nothing's there. It's totally yes. fabricated. Right. Um, and there was a story of these these lawyers, I think, who used this case that didn't exist. Uh, and they just wait they submitted it as is. And so I'm, I'm worried about that. I'm worried like yeah. every human like I think wants to like take like, you know the like we, we want to make things efficient. We're not, I want to say lazy, <laughs> but maybe there's there's a more polite. Well, maybe a little bit, but yeah, we will have a bit of that sometimes, you know. And uh, so even when like there's not like a fictional URL or a fictional case in law, um, even when everything kind of checks out and it's, there's nothing that's been hallucinated, mm-hmm. um, I'm still kind of worried about just the mere fact that like we'll, we'll lose something. This may be just a personal concern, but we will lose some some of our own ability and the uh, our, our desire to question, right? So if ChatGPT gets better and we see fewer of these hallucinations, we're more and more likely, I think, to um, lazily accept whatever outputs we get, you know. And then if there's subtle things that that aren't obvious to us, like that's still, you know, when you multiply it out by millions of people using these tools, will shift how whole industries work, um, or also our own individual skills and abilities i'm kind of worried about that you know i'm worried about about people like not like forgetting how to code and for not paying attention to the more subtle intricate large-scale issues that use of these tools can 
can play. So yeah, I, I'm definitely worried about those kinds of things. So we need we need to we need to figure it out. We need to be aware of it. Yeah. And long term, even though it's going to require some work and it might be annoying, <laughs> we, we right. still need to um, we still need to make sure that individual skills like are still um, um, uh, you know maintained to some certain level. And we also need to look at the big picture and make sure that there's not like inequities or biases that are, are being perpetrated or accelerated through use of these models. Got it. Um, what what are your I'm going to call this sort of traditional AI or, or, or ML. I mean, I think this is where sort of you're categorizing things, you're labeling things. And now we're on to sort of this, I'm going to call it sort of generative, although as you pointed out, it's been around for a long time. But as we apply that to healthcare, um, you know, obviously there's the, per, what I'll call sort of the personal impediment to deploying technology in healthcare, which is sort of the people and the reluctance and, and all that and changing workflows and all that. There's also, I wonder, you know, as we get to generative AI, are there sort of technical challenges in particular? I'm thinking the scale of, you know, generative AI, the hardware that's required um, to run sort of these models. Is is that like, is that something that you you see, you know, you, I think you were also associated with Toronto Rehab. Um, so you probably have some sense of kind of what goes on there. It, is the technical piece a major obstacle for adoption in the Canadian healthcare system? Is that going to be like a stumbling block or they, do they even have sort of the horsepower to do this or because everything's in the cloud, we don't worry about it and it all runs on our phones. Yeah. I, I think it won't be as much of a problem as I, I thought it might've been like a couple of years ago. Like it okay. is true that for the very big models, you still need, you know, GPU powers, but a lot of, a lot of hospitals have been investing in these in data centers um, and you know, even with um, with a few desktops with a GPU in them, like you can okay. you can do a lot of the kind of work that you need. And then, like we we're talking about earlier, classical AI, sometimes you know, a simple logistic regression or a support vector machine, mm-hmm. some classic AI techniques, perfectly performant, um, and uh, they shouldn't be kind of cast aside just because they're not the cool new thing. Um, so, like, I think you know, we our institutions probably do have the. Uh, I think we, we can we can manage it. I think there are some concerns about. You know, well, maybe, um, you know, sick kids or Sunnybrook in Toronto can afford these big data centers, but, you know, a, a family clinic in, in you know, um, Iqaluit or even in, in rural Ontario, um, they might not. Um, so how, how do you make sure that, that you know, uh, this technology is distributed equitably? That, that's a, like a wide scale um, kind of political challenge. Um, but also, you know, it, it, like you mentioned, it runs on our phones, but often when it runs on our phones, it's also making use of cloud services. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at that point, we're also... Like it's kind of invisible to us. Like we don't have to pay for a GPU when we buy a phone, um, or when we make reference when we make API calls to ChatGPT. But um, you know we are going to pay for it, and in the long run, it's not always clear like to me whether it'll cost more or less in the long run. Certainly, you know, spending a, like a fraction of a penny for a call to ChatGPT is is, mm-hmm. is is inexpensive in the short term, but multiplied over 10, 20 years, like it might cost us more, right? And so I still think it's good for we we need to invest in. Like Canadian infrastructure, uh, GPUs on Canada in Canada, um, and in in uh, like broadly available, um, but it's not it's not it's not um, like a huge urgent uh, emergency. I think. Got it. So your comment on healthcare is it's interesting um, in terms of sort of access. So if you had to bet, I'm just wondering, do you, do you see sort of and I'm going to use this term broadly, but AI in healthcare at sort of the patient provider facing level. Do you see it rolling out sort of big cities than small rural communities or the other way around? It's because I, I, I also think that AI probably has its biggest impact from a clinical perspective in the periphery where you don't have necessarily the resources to do a lot of this heavy lifting, right? And yet maybe they're not hardware resourced in the right. So I'm just curious how you see this maybe sort of evolving, like which direction would you choose? 
Yeah, so th this is good. It's a great question. And uh, it's also like, I think it's evolving very rapidly. So one of the reasons why it's a good question is because it's changing rapidly and like, it's not really clear um, like where the chips will fall. So like, this is sort of my, my personal opinion yep. about, about this question. And I think it's, a, it's, again, it's a bit of a balance. Often, you know, you'll find that um, a lot of the innovations that are coming out um, using AI come out of universities and universities are often in, in relatively large cities um, or close to relatively large cities. So when you see things like, oh, we're going to use um, a smartwatch to, to listen to your voice or listen to your breathing or something like that, um, it'll be deployed kind of usually in urban centers first, um, just because that's where, that's where the innovations have happened in the first place. But like, like you said, like it's always, it, it's, the, um, it's the remote care that I think is going to have the biggest impact. And we're talking way at the beginning of the conversation about trying to um, take the burden off of assessment and, and dementia. Mm -hmm. yep. And um, it, it's especially heartfelt when, you know, you're in a community where it's really hard to find, find a doctor, even in big cities sometimes. Yep. You know, if you're in long-term care, you might have a doctor coming in once a week, but you have a thousand people who live in long-term care. Who do they see? Um, so, yeah, like, um, that's key. Uh, there, there's some, like, provinces have these, you know, telemedicine networks, which um, I think... Uh, are a very good foundation, but should should be used more in terms of getting the technology distributed out to to communities broadly. It is going to be challenging, right, um, to go you know from a big city that has like you know three five million people in it to small communities with a few hundred people in it, and go to each one and 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 start deploying things. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's that's key exercise. How this going to actually play out? The reason why it's interesting. One of the reasons it's interesting to me how it's actually going to play out uh, over the next five or ten years is unknown to me. Um, but it's something that really should happen, you know, um, somehow. And uh, so we need to make sure that people in these small communities are provided with the tools, but also like the, the clinicians in those communities have like, the time and resources to educate themselves on how to use these new uh, technologies. Well, I think it's a great way of just democratizing healthcare, right? I mean, particularly to a lot of the the, the access and services that they can't get unless you're in a big city, which which nobody wants to necessarily come to. So yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this rolls out, like whether their need for these tools sort of overwhelms their reluctance to use them or, or vice versa. So we'll, we'll have to, you know, I don't know which one to your point. That's another thing also starting to drop, but I mean, the other thing is reluctance, right? Like I think yeah. there's, there's always, there's a bit of um, skepticism. Sometimes we're talking about skepticism amongst healthcare providers. Like they want to make sure that this, like the, the you know, the sensitivity, specificity of these models are right. a certain That's, level yeah. and that it, it, it fits into the workflows very well. But then there's like the kind of skepticism you see in the general public. Which is different. It sometimes has more to do with 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 their own personal privacy. People are worried about you know, or organization um, using their data in ways that they don't understand, they don't they don't they're not aware of, and they don't consent to. Right. Um, so like those those kinds of questions that, that also like we need to make uh, make people aware of. Like, and again, it's it's kind of complicated because, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes there are countries that have like like that want to spread misinformation. Yep. Sometimes there are organizations that really just want to pull every dollar out of you. Um, and uh, so there's, there's reason to be concerned, but it's not always there. Like off, there's a really great people working in healthcare and AI and yeah. they don't have those nefarious uh, uh, intentions. <laughs> and um, and so like, like, you know, I think like people need to, uh, it's going to be long, but it's going to be a conversation to have for sure. Right. Well, um, sort, sort of leading off that topic, and I, I, yeah, I believe you're part of sort of the CIFAR group and the, there was a CIFAR health task force made several recommendations in around sort of almost three years now, I guess, July, 2020 around data procurement of AI applications, alignment of government strategy policies. You know, three years in AI time, that seems to be like a really short amount of time because things are really moving quickly. Just how are we doing? Like, like if you kind of were to go back on that report and look at sort of those three high level topics, you know, sort of access to data, procurement of AI applications, alignment of government strategy and policies with healthcare, like 
you know, you, you're a professor. How would you grade? How would you grade us? And, and not sort of putting the blame on anywhere, just to be clear. But I'm just sort of yeah. just saying overall, like how like are we? You know, we're we're hitting A pluses. We're we're actually sort of falling below <laughs> the grade. In, in terms of sort of you know, th again, three years I think is probably in this particular field is probably long enough to have made some movement one way or the other. So I'm just curious what your yeah. thoughts are. I think there, there's some successes, but there's also like a, um, uh, some challenges remain. I think the, the the task, like the Health Canada and the task force, and like the community generally, is very well intentioned, and everyone realizes um, issues related to access and procurement are the major um, uh, issues that need to be worked on. Um, but it, it's, it's going to be. I, I don't think anybody on the task force or Health Canada or anything like that was naive at any point. Um, everyone right. knew this is going to be a long, a long haul. Um, I think three years. Is, it's a long time in AI. Like a lot has happened in three years in terms of the models. Right. But um, in terms of like um, how data moves around and uh, how regulations work, three years is very short, right? And it's <laughs> going to take a long time before everything works together in complete concert. Um, but it's, it's not like I think um, things are are fine. I, I give for a grade, I probably give us like a C, maybe um, <laughs> a B minus or something. Okay. But you know, like it could be a lot worse, right? So like I, that's kind of like a very like middle of the road thing. I, you know, we, unfortunately, we still have to make use of, like, a lot of the data we use, um, you know, in, in our courses or in our research is um, the either general purpose data, like we're looking for healthcare signals in, like, social media, or we're using data from the States mm -hmm. or from England, usually. Like, there's a couple of data sets that are, like, really robustly maintained. Out of the NHS, yeah. 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 And, yep. um, and they're still, like, they're still kind of core to everything we do. Um, there was a very popular data set called CIFAR, which is for images. Like it was one of the most popular data sets for images, general purpose computer vision. Right. Um, but it was it was uh, it was an initiative that CIFAR um, saw as being really important, and they went ahead with it. And now it's like a it's a really key uh, data set. And it would be w wonderful if Canada could produce something similar. But it's it's challenging, right? It's not something that's going to be solved in three years. Like I think individual patients don't want like their 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 health data. Uh, shared broadly with the whole world, um, or even with with researchers that may not have even heard of this data set yet, etc. Right. Like we're we're it's, it's it's very challenging, right? Um, so so also, you, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say so, Frank. So if you had to sort of pick sort of data versus procurement of the AI applications by the healthcare system versus alignment strategy and policies, if we had to focus on one of those, and I I, I fully realize they're all interconnected, but if we had to focus on one of those over the next let's say two to three years, is, would it be data? Is is that where you would sort of Put your mind, in terms of to actually move the needle on getting sort of this technology into the healthcare system, like I'm just yeah. and again and all interrelated. But I'm just yeah. where should we put our efforts? So it, data is still probably the first the first thing to focus on, and I think it, it's not always about the amount of data. Like we didn't mention earlier, sometimes you can take these foundation models yep. that are trained with public data and then just fine tune it with a small amount. So it, you don't need to like open up everything. Um, but I think the main one of the main concerns is like the um, the variety of tasks in healthcare that are usually available to us. Um, you know, so I mentioned that there's a data set called Mimic yep. that we still use a lot in our research. But then, you know, when we use those kinds of data sets, everything becomes a problem related to sepsis um, or, or risk of mortality, and those are very specific problems. Right. You know, and even the data itself is very specific in terms of its type. Like, you know, there's a bit of time series data, there's a bit of text, and there's a bit of structured data, but it's pretty limited. Um, and uh, and even in, like in, in Toronto, there's a lot of uh, really exciting initiatives to um, kind of create data sets that are available to the community locally. Um, but um, and I think those are also going to be very successful in the long run. But like a challenge for some of my students initially was that, well, it's in a domain that we haven't really worked in uh, and it, there's no text, you know, like my, my students all want to, all want to do text because they want to do natural language processing. There's no text yet, but if we wait, you know, maybe a few years, they'll be available. 
Um, and so that's always a challenge. Like, you know, if we want to, uh, you know, one of my students has a really, he has another startup um, uh, called Tabia, which is mm-hmm. wearables and audio recording. Um, and uh, he's done a lot of great work with hospitals, but it's always been like starting from scratch with, we need, we need data of people breathing, um, you know, and how to do this. We have to go through ethics. We have to, before you can get to ethics, you need champions and buy-in. And it's, a, it's a, that, that process is, is always really laborious. It's, it's hard for research. Like if a master's student's only with you, really after their courses for eight months, that's, right. that's not enough time to, no. to start a project and go through ethics. You know, no, you're just putting in the REB proposal at that point. Yeah, so and, then, and if you want Canadian companies to be successful, like the, the, the beginning is, is key, right? When they're trying to get some runway, yep. they're getting small grants, you know, they, they need data. And um, so I think like, the, I, and they, again, not to overuse the word ecosystem, but there needs to be an ecosystem of data. It should be relatively easy for for someone to come in and say, "I need, I need, um, you know, people, uh, I need breathing sound, da- audio data of people breathing with COPD." Right. And um, I obviously like it can't just be as simple as as uh, you fill in a form and you get it, but um, then you still you still have to get ethical approval and everything. But that process should be much faster. Gotcha, gotcha. I want to move on to sort of a, a you know nature of time. A couple of last questions here, but but fascinating. We're probably not going to do enough to really unpack them. So maybe we'll have to bring you back, but I know you have an interest in AI in the field of surgery. Um, mm-hmm. Love to maybe just sort of ask you a couple of questions about it. One, I think it's sort of first, I like just, you know, you went from speech recognition to surgery or, you know, or cognitive assessment to surgery. I'd love to figure out how you made that jump or sort of what, what, what tickled your fancy in that field. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think, you know, maybe for, for some of us, at least, you know, NLP, you, you for report generation, you know, sort of preoperative notes, but I, I think that's maybe the obvious um, area to use NLP or maybe on the imaging side and surgical planning, but are you, are, so one, what got you interested, but two, are you seeing anything beyond that? Or are we still just hitting the tip of the iceberg with those particular, um, kind of technologies with NLP, just in that use case alone? Like, I'm just sort of love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So this is something that I think we're going to, we'd, we'd lovely if I could, if I could, we could talk again about well, it. Bring um, it back. <laughs> Uh, so surgery. So I think like this is more of my personal journey. I think like I, I, um, I I've been doing natural language processing since like my first year of undergrad, and I got I was a few years into my my professorial work. I, I never really abandoned natural language processing, but I was just kind of in, I, I, through vector. You know, you get exposed to more different types of uh, AI in healthcare, and you know, maybe just personally, I wanted to learn more about computer vision, which I had had a very slight dabbling in during my PhD, but I wanted to learn more about it and learn more about the healthcare system generally. So I more or less wanted to just increase the breadth of my knowledge in the area, the breadth of my experience. So I think that, that that's a lot of what motivated motivated it. I didn't know very much about surgery. Um, and it seemed to me at the time that, you know, this was also something where like AI could uh, have a tremendous benefit, you know, like, um, not something that would slowly like improve processes over a long period of time, but um, right right away. You know, if you can avoid some like a complicating event um, using AI, that I thought that would be um, a very um, uh, important use of AI. So uh, I was very excited uh, initially. Like it, it turned out, I mean, and then I learned a lot about computer vision. And there's a ton of stuff you could do, like working in that area. Um, you know, you could look at um, how. A surgeons, like how 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 um, effective they are, how skilled mm-hmm. they are in terms of their technical skill. Um, you can look for uh, signs of complicating events. You can. Whenever, we're still doing research now in terms of um, listening to how a team in the OR, like the surgeon, the nurses, the anesthetists, how they work together. Um, there's a lot of evidence that um, uh, the quality of teamwork has yep. a, a very high impact on the quality of outcomes. And uh, so they're actually using natural language processing again. We're, we're using speech. It's very challenging in an OR. 
to hear what's being said and then, yeah. By, yeah, the, how, how the teamwork is uh, progressing. So I, I, going forward, I'm still very interested in that area. Okay. In terms of deployment, um, it's uh, I think there's still a lot left to uh, to uncover. I think there's a couple of very simple things you can do um, with, like as I mentioned earlier, like identifying the skill of a surgeon. But that's just one piece of a very complicated puzzle. Um, and um, you know, it, even if you have a very qualified uh, surgeon or technically skilled surgeon who really can, you know, has very skilled you know, by manual movement of multiple instruments at once, like because of so many other factors, um, that doesn't necessarily correlate well with with improved outcomes or even with improved safety. So mm. I think um, it's a uh, it's a complicated environment, and um, and it's uh, it's going to require more than like a single model to you need to have like a concert of things together. Just okay. so some companies like were were started and um, kind of bought out by other companies, and uh, but it ended up not really um, succeeding yet. Um, I, I, I like everything. I think AI eventually will have success in every area, um, but um, you know there's is simple, quick wins we can get with, like I mentioned earlier, with uh, improvements to to uh, staffing, yep. um, and those can be deployed right away. And then there's more long-term um, uh, outcomes of AI that um, aren't solvable today, but I think eventually will be. Got it. So, so we talk. I mean, a lot of what you said I think is is really interesting, and I think we do need to bring you back and sort of even go deeper into that because I'd love to sort of unpack sort of all that from maybe even a more technical perspective. But a lot of what you said, Frank, sounds like sort of improving, let's just say sort of the human aspect of surgery, whether it's the individual surgeon, whether it's the the, the team dynamics, that, that and, and, you know, if you've been in an operating room, obviously there's a wide diversity as there is in many things, but sort of good operating teams, bad operating, more efficient, you know, and, and a whole bunch of things. I think AI can, can work in that area quite effectively. The other area where, you know, I'm sort of probably a little bit slightly more familiar is sort of robotics and AI, where I think that's where it gets all the buzz of actually, instead of just sort of just helping the human specifically, it's actually getting robotics to do some of the work. What are your, what are your thoughts on sort of how AI will sort of move that forward? And, and I sort of think of this as, you know, in surgery of sort of fault tolerant stuff, which is what you give the clinical clerk and the intern to close the wound, because it doesn't really matter if you miss a staple or not. I mean, the patient's not happy. I We'll, we'll admit to that, but, but, you know, the surgery goes well versus, you know, doing an anastomosis where you wouldn't hand the needle driver over to the, to the student. How do yeah. how do you sort of see AI improving sort of those two aspects? Again, is the obvious answer? Well, of course, well, the, the, you know, the fault tolerance stuff is going to happen first. And when people feel comfortable with that, they're going to do the, the, you know, the more complicated intolerant stuff like the anastomosis. Mm-hmm. Um, is that kind of the way we should think about it? And the obstacles for that, similar to what we talked about before, where, you know, maybe explainability, interpretability is maybe not as big a deal, but it's actually just like, does this stuff work and, and how well does it work? Because the last thing you want to do is close someone up and, and then send them back and then have to bring them back to the OR because the anastomosis is leaking. Like, any yeah. thoughts on how that's sort of moving? I, I, you know, acknowledge it's robotics plus AI, just not AI itself, but obviously I'm thinking AI drives what that robot does to a large part. There's some really cool stuff. Like I don't work too much in terms of the physical robotics um, of uh, AI and surgery, but there are like a lot of researchers um, uh, across Canada and many in Germany that are developing these new tools that are really complicated and um, and, and they, more, they have many more uh, modes of articulation or points of articulation. Yeah. And the way they move is, is sort of very um, outside of our own kind of experience. Like we're used to rigid bodies with like very clearly articulating joints, like kind of resemble complicated versions of our, of our arms, right? That's right. how we think. These new ones are much more snake-like, and um, okay. again, I'm not an expert, so I, I don't know the technical term for that. But they, they look like like very very complicated snakes, and um, I think like AI probably would be able to like 
you know, use those kind of really more um, uh, esoteric type tools um, or in a way that more effectively than humans will be able just because of our, our uh, cognitive limitations. Um, and like you said before about tolerant versus non-fault tolerant, I think it's going to be very similar to how like the um, autopilot works in airplanes, right? Like I think as far as no, I know also the um, like pilots, the human pilots are still responsible for takeoff and landing. Right. Uh, there's a lot like less um, uh, tolerance for, for faults, but autopilot is used for so much of the rest of it. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think like more and more you're going to see like robotics doing more and more of the actual surgery. Um, and uh, and it'll start with, with the simpler or more fault tolerant aspects of it. Those will probably also be the aspects which are going to be easier to convince hospitals and regulatory bodies to allow. Right. Um, but I think eventually, again, over a long period of time, the, the needle will keep on moving and then eventually like a lot, a lot of other things um, yeah, will surpass our abilities and um, we'll probably do a better job than us. Um, but um, in, in a lot of things, but I think there's still going to be areas where like humans are still going to be needed. I'm just not sure exactly what it's going to be yet. But yeah, it's going to start simple and then gradually become uh, more and more complicated. It's going to be an interesting world. Um, sure. just, we're at the sort of top of the hour. A couple of quick questions here. Frank, the last one is sort of like, if you know, you're obviously, you've been embedded for the field a long time. You know, if you had to pick sort of, you know, let's just call the top three. You don't have to pick three, but it'd be great if you do. What are the sort of top three most exciting AI technologies in the domain of healthcare that you're now seeing that's not, you know, we could say all AI is not quite ready for prime time, but things that you think are, you know, a fair bit behind, but really could be significantly impactful. And it can be from a technical perspective, whether that means they're changing the model, the data sets, whatever you think. It could be from a clinical domain, like surgery we talked about, or some other domain. Any, like, it, it just, if you were just sort of, you know, pontificate and sit there and say like, wow, you know, in five or 10 years, this pointing to something was, is gonna be like significantly change the way we do medicine. Is there anything, or, or and by the way, maybe we're there, I guess, with, with NLP to be fair, but. I think we're, we're we're getting there. I um I think there's there's like there's a lot of really exciting models out there, and um, I guess there's kind of three areas like very broadly like not not to mention any particular uh, work yeah. or company, but um, I think there's a, a lot in terms of just the raw um, scalability of of models. Like humans, like we're not really able to process like huge massive amounts of like, so-called big data at scale, and um, but machines are very efficient in it. So I think on the in areas of like omics. Like genomics mm -hmm. yep. and um, and uh, this this like, and drug discovery, um, yep. I think very there's a whole area there that I think AI can crunch the numbers very quickly, um, and I think it's going to be very productive uh, relatively soon. So if, if things proceed, we're going to see a lot in terms of um, uh, kind of you know genetic indicators of X um, being discovered almost entirely by AI. It's like humans will point the direction, and AI will say, "Oh, these genes are the cause of that behavior." Um, but then also, you know, we, we've developed this drug that can help, um, you know, uh, overcome this issue. So I think um, that whole field is uh, where a lot of things are going to improve. It's going to be kind of behind the scenes from the point of view of the general public. Like we're not going to we're not going to see that working directly, but we're going to see the results of it. So we're going to have, have more tests, like uh, some blood tests and um, the resulting prescriptions we get are going to mm -hmm. be informed by AI. Um, that's one thing. One, one big category. The second huge massive category, I think, is just improvements to efficiencies in healthcare systems. I think this is important to me uh, mostly because of, um, you know, in Canada and in, in other countries too. Like we act as if Canada is the only country that has wait times or, or challenges <laughs> with burnout. You know, um, like I think nurses across the entire planet have these issues. But you know, just thinking locally, um, you know, we want to. I, I think most of us agree that we want to preserve as much of 
public healthcare system as we possibly can. And we want to make sure that as efficient as possible so that healthcare dollars are used effectively. Um, and that's a very complicated problem. And uh, AI is not going to solve all of it on its own. But um, I think there's a lot of ways that we can uh, improve uh, improve the, the, the value of the dollar in the public healthcare system by engaging more AI into it. Um, so we talked a little bit about staffing on one hand. Um, part of it will also be um, used to you know, avoid complications or identify mm-hmm. risks. This whole category we didn't really get a chance to talk about of AI um, is used for risk assessment. Um, like like you know, basically, if we discharge this person, how likely is it that they'll be readmitted within X number right. of days? And that, that's a huge cost to the healthcare system. So improving models of that and improving efficiencies, again, outside the scale of human uh, cognition, but AI can do it very effectively. We're going to see big wins. And then the, the, third, the last part of that component is how to make, you know, how to take a bit of the burden off of clinicians and doctors. And for me, the, the main area there is uh, family care. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, personally, like I, I know a lot of family doctors and I see how, how, uh, how difficult their work has become and it's how much of the work is not what they got into healthcare right. uh, in the first place. Like they, want to, they want to help patients and develop relationships, but they find most of their time is spent sending referral letters and doing paperwork. And I think AI, AI is very good at the, um, you know, it doesn't get bored. <laughs> it doesn't get overwhelmed uh, you know, in terms of the time. So yeah. uh, having AI kind of do some of that work for us is going to be, I think, a big win. And then the third big category, I'm not ordering these things, by the way. These yeah. are just like top three. Um, the third big category of, of improvements, I think, is going to be like we talked about earlier also in terms of like potential democratization of, of these models and um, how we like deploy them remotely and into smaller communities. Um, you know, like already in Canada, there's a bit of an inequity problem where like your your outcomes are going to be a lot better if you live in in, in like big city, uh, city yeah. smaller city. And uh, I think this it won't happen uniformly, but like slowly, if we could chip away at problems with inequity by deploying models broadly through tele- telemedicine networks, um, that's going to be a big area of uh, a benefit also. Got it. Awesome. Well, we're at the top of the hour, the, the, the last question you, you, you sort of, I think, embedded in there, but I'd love to maybe just pull it out a little bit is I like to ask all the guests, um, particularly the, the Canadian ones that are on here, Frank, is, you know, um, despite our sort of need to change the system and make it more innovative and make it more efficient and, and effective, um, I think most of us would agree that this health system, you know, for each of us probably has something good embedded in it. And I'm just sort of curious, as we move forward, despite AI or NLP or, or, or you know, however we want to classify it what's the what's at least one thing that you want to make sure the healthcare system in canada doesn't lose like like what needs to stay the same like what works really well that you know we, we hope as all these changes happen it doesn't wipe that out as well yeah so yeah, that's a great, great question this is also something that i think like as a broad community a conversation that like, a lot of people need to have for me personally i think that access is is, is absolutely key yeah. Um, you know, we, 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 we often talk about our, our waiting, wait times uh, as being an issue compared to some countries, but it's actually a lot better compared to others. The main thing is access. And I think the, the fact that our, our healthcare isn't tied up with necessarily our employment, right? This is, it seems like obvious, but, um, right. uh, you know, the fact that I, um, you know, like a lot of us have, have, in, have, uh, have encountered very severe medical emergencies in our lives. And, you know, the, the fact that we... Uh, can be guaranteed that we'll be seen, you know, and especially for the more serious things, we'll be seen relatively quickly. That that's important, and it's not going to cost us, you know, our house uh, in order to be seen. Like, um, and the fact that it doesn't matter if you're a wealthy, you know, uh, billionaire or right. someone who's who's working, you know, two or three jobs. Like, we're all, we're all going to be seen. We're, we're all equally 
viewed uh, as important in terms of healthcare and in terms of our society, that's that's absolutely in, in crucial. So I know things are changing or they're at risk of changing in a few provinces, but yeah. um, uh, and you know there's always a big conversation to have about how to improve healthcare. But like you know we're all we, should, we, we all we all need access, and that that has to be preserved. Got it. Awesome. So, so Frank, if people want to kind of reach out to you and, and stay in touch with you, whether that's sort of a master's students looking for, you know, someone to supervise in PhD, um, so, you know, and anyone sort of wants to reach out and get to Frank, what's the best way to, to do that? Uh, so, I mean, I used to be on social media. I, I stopped using a uh, certain one recently. Um, <laughs> I, I'm still on LinkedIn and uh, people reach out on LinkedIn quite often. Um, and uh, of course, if you Google me, there's, um, my main, uh, I have a website where I kind of maintain just like an updates as to what I'm up to. There's contact information there. People can feel free to email me at uh, frank.dial.ca. Awesome. I'll make sure I put that up on the show notes as well. So Frank, I want to thank you again for all your time and uh, would love to absolutely have you back and sort of dig into some uh, more meaty topics. So, but thank you for all the time you spent today and thank you for helping us to understand this area. This has been a great pleasure. Great questions. And thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks. Thanks.